And so good morning. Uh, please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Uh, we have an amazing story to read today, uh, and, and I hope that all of us are going to be ready to dig in. So uh, instead of reading it the, the way we normally do it, some of you guys are familiar with this, we usually read through the whole thing and then we go back over it a piece at a time. Uh, so instead of doing it that week, or that way this week, we're going to replicate what we did last week, which is reading through the passage and uh, expositing as we go. And so um, if you would, please go to verse 25. Verse 25. You may remember uh, from last week what the situation currently is. Paul had driven a demon out of a slave girl who had been fortune-telling for, for her, her masters and making a lot of money for them. And Paul and his companion Silas had been terribly beaten. Uh, they'd been thrown into the darkest recesses of the local prison, and then they'd been immobilized as stocks on their feet. Uh, and last week, we discussed the fact that this would be a pretty awful situation. Um, and yet the attitude and the behavior of the two apostles in this case just don't really seem to match up with their circumstances. And, and we're going to start off today on the same verse that we ended on last week. Uh, and we're going to see how the story continues. But before we do, I want to ask you guys to keep your, your minds and your eyes and your ears open uh, to one simple theme, and that is in what way, in what ways, I should say, do we see the title of this message showing up in the story? And the title is The Joy of Salvation. What, is, what does that mean? And so first we're going to define joy. Um, for our purposes today, let's call it happiness that isn't constrained by present circumstances, okay? Happiness that's not constrained, negatively affected by your current circumstances. Now, what about salvation? Salvation has a lot of different meanings in Scripture. Uh, my, my dad, most of you guys know who he is, uh, is very, very scholarly fellow, and he told me one time that there are 14 different ways that the word salvation is used in Scripture. But for the sake of this message, because it always depends on the context, remember that. Whenever you read Scripture, always look at the context, don't, you know, I remember I used to work out with a guy that would go, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And I'm like, dude, context, you know, that's, that's so not what that means. But, um, but, you know, context matters. And for the sake of this message and the context in this passage, it means salvation in the sense that we Christians generally use it, you know, not temporary rescue, but eternal salvation from the power and the penalty of sin which was purchased for us at Calvary by the death of Jesus Christ, who then arose from the dead, and through whom we can receive this salvation by God's grace through faith. So that's what we're referring to today. And putting those concepts together, the joy of salvation means the happiness that fills the hearts of believers and then overflows onto others. And it's, it's not as a result of our present worldly circumstances, but as a result of our standing in the eyes of God as being righteous by faith. So that's, that's where we're going today. I want you to have that in the back of your mind. Today's passage, I believe, is a, is a beautiful example of the joy of salvation, how it manifests, and even to an extent, what it may be born out of. So, so today, what we're going to do, we're going to examine how this joy plays out, both in the situation of Paul and Silas, but also in another character in our text, and that is the Philippian jailer. So uh, once everybody's ready and we're all in Acts 16, we can open with prayers. Is anybody not in Acts 16? If you got your, your Bible, your device, scroll there, whatever, you ready to go? All right. Um, let's pray. 
Father, as always, I ask in Jesus' name that you will make us receptive to your word today. Father, help us to be good soil. We pray that your word will go deep and it'll take root and it'll bear fruit in our lives. And Father, we ask that we honor you. Um, I know that we only have faithfulness because of your faithfulness. And I pray that you'll make us ever more faithful so that we reflect Christ to our families, to our communities, to the world around us. We ask that today we, we have something that, that soaks in um, and that we take home. And, and when we start getting wrung out, so to speak, by circumstances, I pray that it's joy that comes out. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Anybody remember without looking what was happening in verse 25 last week? It's when we ended with. We talked about it, but only briefly. Uh, because it's, it's such a big part of this week's message, I didn't want to go off too, too long on it. But Luke writes, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And where were they? They were in a jail, they were in a dungeon. And what are they experiencing? Joy, at the same time as extreme pain and discomfort, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, good, yeah. There is a little bit of an incongruity there if you think about it just from a physical and mental and emotional standpoint, but when you put the spiritual in, all of a sudden, things change. They're praying and they're singing hymns. Why? For one thing, it's probably a great way to keep their spirits up, you know? I mean, it would be a source of strength for each man to have his compadre, right, his compatriot with him, and, and they're experiencing the same thing, so they're probably taking turns encouraging one another. But more than that, they weren't really by themselves, were they? Were they? No, they had the Lord with them. He was right there. You know, it, it says that, that, that God is with his people in Scripture so many times. The Lord was with them. He's nearby. He's listening with a responsive ear and with a powerful hand, and, and they knew it. Even though... Rescue from this immediate situation seemed highly unlikely. Uh, they were still joyful in the Lord, and they were grateful for what he had done for them. And that attitude prompted praise, even in the dark. We don't have a record of what their prayers included here, although we are free to speculate, and I'm actually going to do that later. Uh, I've been thinking about it some. Um, but we know that they were praying and typically, Jewish people of the time prayed out loud. And so, so on top of that, singing hymns meant they were, they were honoring the Lord with their voices through music, okay? Now, now they, they didn't have, it is well, or amazing grace, you know, just yet. It wasn't that kind of hymns. But we can be sure that they already had songs that Christians were singing in the churches to give God glory for what he's done, okay? So, but whatever the case... They're praising God in the midst of some pretty rough circumstances. Is that something that we ought to pay attention to? You guys can answer out loud. I would love it if you, yes. It's like pulling teeth, isn't it, Everett? <laughs> Come on, y'all clap. Come on. No, it, it's all right. I, I, love, I love it when you answer out loud. So if you would, please do. Um, if you're not comfortable, that's fine. So I think it's something we ought to pay attention to. Um, does anyone... Remember a verse, and if someone does, I would love to hear it, that speaks very specifically, it's very commonly memorized about rejoicing. And again, I say rejoice. Thank you. Yes. Awesome. It's Philippians 4.4. 4. Easier said than done, maybe. 
Uh, but does anyone remember where Paul was when he joyfully told his church family to rejoice in the Lord always? He was in jail. He was in prison in Philippi. Oh, no, excuse me, not in prison in Philippi. He was in prison in Rome. So he was in prison. Now, you, you might ask, well, then does that sound realistic? If someone is, is in prison, does God really expect us to praise him even when things are going terribly from our perspective? Or is Paul just a nut? You know, listen, it's not just Paul. You know, James wrote a letter. Uh, he, he wrote it to the Jewish church when they had been scattered because of persecution. And after just one single verse of introduction, he makes this amazing statement. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then he says, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, for the record, James doesn't specifically mention persecution, although that was happening. That's why there was a, a diaspora to begin with. But it, it sounds like he's talking about trials in general. I mean, he says, he says trials of various kinds, right? And it sounds counterintuitive that anyone would would rejoice when going through trials because that's definitely not our default mode, is it? I mean, that's not, that's not naturally what people tend to do, but maybe it ought to be what Christians do. Because if that's what the Word of God says, you can bank on it. It's actually a blessing for Christians to go through trials because we learn to patiently suffer and wait while trusting in the Lord. And Paul actually, he makes a similar statement in, at the beginning of Romans 5. He talks about how perseverance produces character. And that's, that's actually one of the main ways, I think, in which God makes us more like his son, makes us perfect and complete and lacking nothing. But it's especially reason for joy if we're suffering on behalf of Christ and his gospel. You know, there's so many passages that teach this, but I think my favorite one is probably what Luke uh, wrote. Jesus himself said this. It was in Luke chapter 6. Blessed are you, not cursed, blessed, when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Notice he doesn't say because you're a jerk on Facebook or because, you know, you're pushy and rude. He says, when, when this happens on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day, he says, and leap for joy. For behold, that was a terrible leap, but you understand. For behold... Your reward is great in heaven. And this is a really important verse. You notice Jesus, he doesn't even mention physical suffering here. You know, but that would certainly fall under a similar you know, category. Simply being hated or mistreated or slandered because we stand up for Jesus, that's reason to celebrate, according to Jesus. Because it's evidence that we belong to him and that we're going to receive this great reward in heaven. And clearly, you know, these guys, the apostles, they understood that to be true. In fact, they considered it an honor to be punished for Jesus. You remember this when the, the Sanhedrin takes the disciples and they punish them, hoping it would, you know, stop them from preaching? They're thinking, well, maybe this discipline, this, this punishment will be persuasive enough. This also acts as back in chapter 5. Uh, we read this story in August of last year. That's how long we've been in Acts. But Luke says... And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they, the apostles, left the presence of the council crying and swearing they would never say it again. No, it says they rejoicing 
that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. That's awesome. That's not normal human behavior, though, is it? Nah, we don't like to suffer. Usually we really actively dislike suffering. But it's actually an honor in the eyes of Christ to suffer dishonor at the hands of men for his namesake. And just to reiterate, there is so much scripture that reinforces this idea. You know, that we have reason to praise the Lord in the midst of suffering, and especially suffering for Jesus. So back to Paul and Silas. They're sitting there in the dark. It's around midnight, okay? They're immobilized, they're in prison, covered in painful wounds, and they are praying and singing to the Lord, and the prisoners were listening to them. Don't you think about that for a second? It feels almost like a throwaway line until you think about it, and it's like, whoa. <laughs> There's, this is, think about it. Fellow believer, if, if you take nothing else away from today, please allow those words to stick in your mind. There were other prisoners in that jail, and they were suffering too. But they were listening to these believers suffering with joy. You better believe that made an impact. You better believe that changed something when they heard that. It's probably safe to say they weren't accustomed to hearing people sing, you know, hymns in jail. And some of you, you may be feeling right now like you're kind of stuck in a dungeon because circumstances in your life are extremely difficult. I mean, granted, you're probably not locked in a, you know, a cell after a savage beating, but, but there are some ways that might feel even worse psychologically, emotionally. I mean, in a sense, I believe there, there's really a strong advantage to, to suffering for Jesus' sake, because in those situations, we know that God's going to glorify himself through it. But when, you, when you're just suffering and you don't know why, it's disillusioning, isn't it? But no matter who you are, I want you to hear this. There are people who hear what you say. There are people who watch how you respond. The old saying goes, if you take a bottle and you squeeze it, what comes out? It's whatever's inside. I want to say this just, especially if you have a social media presence, listen, people are listening. So for their sake and for your sake, please, please make a decision to praise the Lord, even if it's in the dark. So that's not to say to be fake, but it's to say let people see the light. We're salt and light, folks. Anyway, so to recap, Paul and Silas are in pain. They're in prison, but they're praying and praising, right? And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately it says all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Okay, that's not typical, right? But it happened, I mean, it's clearly a miracle. Everything's been shut. It's been locked. It's been secured. And, you know, but there's nothing that can stop God. When God says he wants to accomplish something, he's going to accomplish it. If he wants to set captives free, he sets captives free. But what's coming next here? I think this is almost equally as surprising, and that's that nobody ran. Nobody ran. Why not? I think, what? Sorry, I thought somebody was answering they're conditioned to be in there? Okay. It's one possible reason. I have a theory. I'm just curious if anybody else has one, though. 
waiting for the next song. Encore! <laughs> I think we'll get a hint shortly, but um, we're going to continue with the story here. When the jailer woke and he saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that his prisoners had escaped. You know, you read that and you go, wow, that seems kind of like an overreaction, you know, but, and it might, except for the fact that a guard in these days was considered responsible for their charge. And if you lost your prisoners, then you yourself were subject to execution. You may remember this from Acts 12. You know, when, when the, the angel released Peter from jail, he was chained to what, like 16 guys? And uh, Herod was like, how'd that happen? They're like, we don't know. And so he's like, and that was it for all those guys, right? So when this, when this earthquake happened, it was, it was probably fairly localized, maybe like only the jail, right? Nobody was gonna believe that the prisoners were set free by an earthquake. You know, what kind of earthquake unlocks doors and chains, you know? So he was probably figuring that if he killed himself, he would be saving his family from, from the horrors that they might otherwise suffer, you know, the interrogations and all that. So, so what do we learn here from the jailer? Well, he is certainly not experiencing the joy of salvation yet at this point. In fact, he's in a state of hopeless despair up to and including suicide. But here's a spoiler alert, he doesn't kill himself, okay? In fact, the prisoners being set free is really a glorious foreshadowing for what's going to happen here. But, but in this man's case, the joy of salvation is going to come out of bleak circumstances. And frankly, that's the case for every single one of us, whether we realize it or not. You know, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, before salvation, he says, we were without hope in the world. Our future is bleak before Jesus. It's sad, it's empty, it's even frightening apart from Christ, no matter how good things may seem to be in this life. And there's, there's actually, there's quite a benefit to realizing that your situation is hopeless because then you've got nowhere to look but where? Up. And this jailer, he was definitely bottoming out in this moment. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are here. We're all here, I love this. You know, can, can you picture this? The prison is dark, right? I mean, all the doors are open, and the jailer, he's just, he shows up, and he's like, oh, oh my goodness, Every, everybody's escaped. They're all gone. They've all ran. But instead, they're just hanging around. You know, they're just, they're waiting. And how do you suppose that happened? I think Paul showed us when he shouted at the jailer not to harm himself, because he and Silas they may have encouraged the rest of the prisoners to wait around so that their guard didn't get executed. And then they weren't about to let him kill himself. Now, this is a theory, but I can back it up, and I will do that a little bit later, I think. But, but I think they, they truly understood the love that Christ had for those who persecuted him. You know, the joy of salvation in Paul and Silas, it produced love for their enemy which I think love for enemies is arguably the most Christ-like trait that anyone can ever display in this life. Does Jacob have handcuffs back there? What is that? Clickety-clack. It was Christ, after all, who asked his father to forgive those who crucified him. And it was also Jesus who instructed his disciples to be the same way. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus gave a command, and, and there's a guy, Adam Clark, 
uh, he called this the most sublime piece of morality ever given to man. I think he's probably right. Christ said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I mean, what, a, what a difficult and amazing and beautiful concept. And it, it's, it's more than a concept because Jesus lived it out. And his spirit indwelling his followers gives us the same capability for grace and the same capacity for mercy. Now, I've, I've got to share uh, something. This occurred to me for the very first time while I was working on this sermon. And it's actually kind of two things. But first, what if, what if, when Paul and Silas were praying, part of their prayer was that God would save their jailer? What if? And if so, perhaps this, this earthquake and this him showing up and them being able to talk, maybe that was a spectacular, resounding yes in answer to that prayer. So what if they prayed for him? And secondly, since the rest of the prisoners had been listening to them as they were praying and as they were praising, I mean, is, is it possible that maybe they'd been touched by this incredible love that Paul and Silas had even for their captor? I mean, isn't that a powerful witness? Anyway, I'm so grateful for their example here. I've been known to have unkind thoughts when somebody just cuts me off in traffic, you know. And, and, but here we get to what real Christianity looks like. Real Christianity loves your enemies. So what happens next? And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Now, I'm sure he was in a whirlwind of emotion right then, right? He'd gone from confusion to terror, and then horror. Ah, they're gone. And then soul-crushing despair, and, and then suddenly hope. But hope produces a completely different kind of, of fear in this case. You see, it says he fell down, and, and he was trembling with fear. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now you know you know at this point, he must have realized everything that they had been preaching in that city for several days was legit. Like, he, he knew, because this supernatural occurrence was just too weird, right? It was, it, was, it was too obvious, too evident that it was God who released them from jail. You know, a strictly natural earthquake is not going to unlock doors and open stocks and, you know, leave people unharmed. Now, likewise, a strictly natural person is not going to hang around for the sake of sparing an enemy's life. I'm not sure the greatest miracle here was the earthquake. Think about it. The jailer knew he was missing something that was super important, and so he knew he asked precisely the right question of the right people. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what do they say? They tell him, do some good works? No. Did they tell him, quit your job and join a monastery? No? How about perform some, these certain steps and carry out these rituals? No, the reply was, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. That's the key. Now, is it true that there are things that accompany salvation? Yes. Are there things that God requires of those whom he justifies? Absolutely. Okay? But these are things, these are all fruits that come from the root of faith. And they all come after the saving faith that God credits as righteousness to those who offer nothing because we have nothing to offer except our sin. I know I quote my dad a lot, 
but he's fond of saying that uh, the, the sine qua non, the sole thing without which there can be no salvation, is faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved is possibly the shortest and most powerful promise in the New Testament or in all the scriptures. And soon we'll see what this new believer does as a continuation of this faith that Paul and Silas are preaching. But for now, okay, the gist is believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. They add, and your household. Now hopefully we can see this shouldn't be understood as the jailer's whole household would be saved simply because he believed on the Lord Jesus because that's not how that works. Okay, But it's also, it's, it's rather the same promise was extended to them and, and possibly uh, maybe his faith was going to be the catalyst that brought the rest of his, his household to faith. But we're not there yet. Uh, first note, a third way that the joy of salvation is evident in the lives of Paul and Silas is that it clearly promoted evangelism. Y'all, listen, we talk about what excites us. We talk about what moves us. That's, that's just natural. You know, if a, person, if a person who professes Christ never talked about him, never shared him with anyone, that would be a shameful thing. I mean, have you ever known a person that was, you know, head over heels for someone that didn't talk about the object of their affection? Or, or a, a grandparent who didn't have 6,000 pictures of their grandkids around the house? No, you haven't, have you? Some of you are probably going to go count. Okay, maybe not 6,000, but a lot, okay? There, sh there should already be the motivation in us to share the good news about Jesus, and not just out of excitement, but also out of necessity, I mean, Paul and Silas, they understood the dire importance of their obligation to share the truth with people who were lost. They were less concerned about their bruised and aching backs, you know, than, than they were about the soul of this jailer. Why? Because, why? Because one is eternal. Yeah. They knew they'd been saved from their sins. They had eternal life to look forward to, and he didn't yet. And I think that that really ought to be incentive for us. You know, there are people around you and people around me who are, frankly, currently on the path to hell. And we should be motivated to share the truth. We should, be, we should care about those people. We should be willing to tell them about the way and the truth and the life who he himself said is the only way to the Father. No one gets to the Father except through Jesus Christ. Continuing on, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. I want you to pause for a second there, okay? What do you think was the content of that presentation? What do you think they shared? Thank you. That he had to believe. I'm, you know, surely it's going to come up at least once, right? <laughs> the gospel message, the good news. That's what they, that's what they shared. And, and that's the obvious thing, but what else? I think it's fair to say from what follows that they had something to say about what the proper response of faith should be. So let's keep reading. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. 
Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. Now, there are a couple of things there that just leap off the page, and they're demonstrated beautifully by this jailer. Uh, you know, he's just undergone conversion. You know, the, the new birth that God produces through the Holy Spirit in connection with faith. And, and first, this baby Christian shows that he has the joy of his, new, his newfound salvation because it caused willing obedience in him. You know, we noted last week with, with Lydia, an immediate response, an immediate response. They didn't wait until, you know, next month when everybody else is doing it, whatever. It, it was a pull-over-the-chariot kind of moment. The immediate response to receiving the gospel in the New Testament is baptism by immersion in water. And biblically, the command to be baptized, it, it is connected to accepting the good news. It's the first step in discipling people according to Jesus. And if you want to hear more uh, about a, a biblical theology of baptism, I recommend you can go to the website. Go back and look at April 11th of last year. Um, it's been a while, but that was when we looked at um, the end of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Uh, there's, there's historically been some disagreement over what baptism actually is and what it does for the Christian, but there should never be. There should never be disagreement about the fact that a person who wants to come to Christ should be baptized and should want to be baptized out of obedience to their Lord and their Savior. And so, this quick aside, if you're here today, if you've not experienced immersion as a cognizant believer, what we call that believer's baptism, I'd encourage you not to leave without being obedient to the Lord in this. We've already got a baptism plan for today, so the water's warm, okay? Just be aware of that. Be aware of that. But that's, see, that's just part of what it means to obey Christ willingly. We are also, we should desire to love God with all your heart, all our minds, you know, everything, everything we have and everything we are, basically. And that's actually, that's demonstrated by the jailer here too, and he loves his neighbor as himself because, you know, that's the other part of that command. We see his newfound joy of salvation also created empathy and compassion for people who just a few hours before had probably been subjects of pity at best and targets at worst. You know, And by the way, um, if you're interested in the difference between empathy and compassion, uh, empathy is, is mentally putting oneself in another person's um, position and then feeling for them. But compassion, it takes that further. It prompts a desire to act on their behalf, to do something to lessen their suffering. Okay? We can see the evidence that, that this jailer, he had a Holy Spirit change of heart. And we see that because he immediately cares for the physical needs of these disciples who just met his most pressing spiritual need by sharing Christ with him. And he brought them into his home. And he washed their wounds to ease their discomfort. And he fed them. And it, it's interesting because you got to wonder, as worried as he was about losing the prisoners, now he's got them in his house. They're just hanging out. You talk about a heart change. It's, it's almost parenthetical in the text here, but notice that, that his entire household also heard the truth, and evidently they believed the gospel, and they also submitted to baptism. Now, I bet this jailer was even more joyful in the understanding that not just is he saved from the power and penalty of sin, but his whole entire family with him. It's a good thing to pray for, folks. If you're a believer, be praying that your entire family will be with you in heaven. You may already do that. Uh, 
Luke completes this thought by saying, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And, and there it is, friends. I mean, this is, this is the joy of salvation manifested in a family, the whole family that had become children of the king. And I love this story. I especially love the nearly instantaneous change that occurred in the, the life of this newborn Christian. It's a reminder. It's a reminder of the joy that I hope each of us felt at that moment when we realized we had received eternal life. And it's a, it's a powerful thing. How many of y'all can remember that joy that you felt? Not many. How many of you still have it today? I hope some of us do. If you don't, why not? Has anything changed with regard to the promises of God? Has anything changed with God's character, with His power, His wisdom, and His knowledge of what is best for us? Have we just gotten used to the idea that, well, I get to go to heaven because Jesus did this thing over here? And, and do we take it for granted? I hope we don't. How about if we recall that we are all desperate sinners who would be hell-bound but for the grace and mercy of God that makes us saints? Let's remember that. I'm going to encourage you all, look over this list one more time um, and see if any of it resonates with you. you know, per perhaps some of you remember the joy of salvation and when it sprung out of your own bleak circumstances. And maybe you're seeing the fruit that should come out of that joy. For instance, praise, even when life is a struggle. Love for others, even when they don't love you back. You know, sharing the good news about Jesus with others so that they can experience the joy of salvation too. The obedient heart that longs to do what Christ commands. And that shift away from self that reflects Christ. And that's, that's empathy and compassion that are markers of this change. Do you have these qualities in your life right now? And if you don't, where is your joy in your salvation? Is it possible that you're focusing too much on the here and now and not enough on the remarkable promises of God? Friend, there's, there's plenty that will get us down in this life if we let it. But we don't have to let it. You know, the, the Spirit of Jesus lives in you if you belong to Him. And you can live in the joy of salvation if you focus on the Lord instead of everything that's wrong with your life. I mean, you know, we're missing out, y'all. Life, life is hard sometimes, yes, but if we have eternal life in Christ, let's appreciate that. Let's let that joy carry into our daily lives in this plane. Because eternal life has already begun. You realize that. If you're in Christ, you're experiencing it now because of what God did through his son. Now, it's going to be a whole lot better when we're free of this mess, you know. But one day, we'll see Jesus as he is, and we will be more like him because our flesh nature will be gone. And we have that to look forward to. 
So let's not mope, you know, and, and give up and waste away and, and let our, our faith rot. Let, let's, let's live faithfully like Paul and Silas and see what God does through our willing obedience. Can we try to do that? Can we try to do that? I'm glad six of you will try to do that. Church, can we do that? Okay. Listen, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, though, that's got to happen first. If you've never never said, I believe in Jesus, you've never understood that his death on the cross paid for your sins and that he is the son of God and that he rose from the dead, If, if that's clicking for the first time this morning, you need to, you need to confess that before this crowd of people. Even if you're a little scared, you need to do that. And you need to be baptized as the word teaches. And if you've already done those things, but you go, you know what, I really am not being obedient. Repent. Repent of your sins. Turn away from them. It's a lifelong process, I know. Sanctification isn't like a, you know, an instantaneous thing, but it's something that the Lord does. And we work with the Holy Spirit in us to become more like Christ. So repent of your sins and strive to be more like Jesus. And listen, if, you're, if you feel like, I, I think I'm doing all right with this, but I, I don't have the joy of salvation, listen. There's nothing better than knowing Jesus. 